Welcome to Making Metric Easy, presented by Outlaw Technology. I'm Hans Dietrich, and each week we speak with companies in the trenches of the seed-to-sale process. Bree Oaxaca is out this week, so Dave Eagleson, CEO of Outlaw Technology, is sitting in for her. Hey, Dave. Hey, Hans. Happy to be here. Our guest today is our friend Sarah Kavakoff, Vice President of Business Development at Dutchie. Hey, Sarah, and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Pretty sure most everyone in the cannabis industry already knows who Dutchie is. But for those who don't, we'll definitely get into that a bit later in the podcast. But first, Sarah, we'd like to learn a little bit about you. How long have you been in the cannabis industry? What's your background? And how'd you get started in weed? I started in the cannabis industry coming up on four years now. I've always been a big proponent of the plant, uh, both for medical and uh, recreational uses. So my background is actually point of sale. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, Dutchie is a point of sale platform. I came from the restaurant space, hospitality space. I owned a bar for several years. Um, it was actually a nightclub more than it was a bar. Uh, it was two nightclubs put next to each other. And I left that world to go into the point of sale world because I wanted to have a more like normal nine to five job. I want to hear more about this nightclub you used to own. You'd mentioned <laughs> that in the past. So, oh, dude, it was a 10,000 square foot nightclub. I used to do all kinds of wild shit there. I had two live crew there. I had the yin yin. Oh, oh, man. In in Ohio? In yeah, I owned it from 2003 to 2006. And you gave it up? Well, it's a tough life. It is. Uh, nice. I was 23 when I got into the business, and you know there are a lot of powdery drugs in that business. Right, uh, there are. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was uh, partying a lot, as you can imagine, a 23 year old with basically unlimited like funds, drugs, parties. You know, I was. Uh, I spent so much money advertising with Clear Channel in 2004 <laughs> that they paid. All expenses, including food, hotel, everything. The only thing they didn't pay for was my gambling, and they sent me out to Vegas. Ooh, wow. Wow. We were actually the very first nightclub in, in the area to do actually broadcast live from the club. So we had an ISDN line dropped in. That's how long ago. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, an ISDN line dropped in, and we used to broadcast on Friday nights. We would do the house party from the club. And what you heard on the radio was literally what you heard coming out of the speakers. And there was no one who had done that. They'd always done remotes before. Like, hey, we're here at blah, blah, blah. Come see us. But no one had actually done live broadcast from a bar. And so we started doing that. And we would hit capacity. It was a thousand person capacity. I'd hit it before midnight. It was crazy. <laughs> it was awesome. crazy. And this was, this was in Ohio, right? Yeah. In Cincinnati. Yeah. And you got to remember, like, I was I was a young kid at this point. I didn't know what I didn't know. I'm 23 years old, owning a successful <laughs> nightclub. I, you know, I had 16 bouncers, 10 cops, 10 bartenders, 10 waitresses. And it, wow. it was a big operation. And if I could go back and redo it all now, it would be far more successful than it was then. <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, we were pioneers. We did a lot of really cool stuff and really made some waves in the city back then. So... You know, my most unpopular views right now on cannabis are the lounge scene, because I really honestly believe that the future of cannabis is so, it's it's going to be in lounges. Now, I'm not saying in five years, it's probably more like 15 years, mm -hmm. but the reality of it is once you have interstate commerce, 
like you're likely going to be able to get, you know, like flower, like cannon fodder type flower, right? That yeah. like that basic like outdoor, not bad flower, just like packs of joints, distilled cartridges, distillate edibles, that kind of stuff at gas stations. I mean, it's already happening today in Minnesota. I was just down in in uh, Texas for New Year, and they had a cannabis THCA vending machine on South. Coast. Just sitting out there with an. Oh, I've heard. I've heard of that. That you know, there, yeah. there, there's like well, you know, the red box thing. They're they're looking at getting into that, from what I understand. What you'll end up seeing is, at least, what I could envision is like here in Cincinnati. Let's say, like, if I was to go and consume cannabis on site, I think that this would be the the typical view for most people that they would enjoy, right? So I go into like sort of a cafe. Whether they have alcohol or not is six and one, half dozen the other. Maybe the alcohol is like in a connected building or something. Maybe there's no alcohol. Regardless, I could go in and I could get myself a half gram of lemon haze, a half gram of grape head, a half gram of northern lights, right? And then I can try that flight of bowls, whatever it might be. And then I can take home a quarter of lemon haze if that's what I want to take home or grape head or whatever it is. And I could sit there, I could order myself a coffee or some tacos or whatever it's going to be. And I could consume my cannabis, work like I would at like a Starbucks or whatever, and then take my cannabis home with me and have a very normalized experience that way. Or I could go someplace to like a brewery today. I could play cornhole. I could be hanging out outside by a fire pit, whatever the scenario is, playing volleyball, just like you would at a brewery. But instead of going to buy alcohol, I'm going to buy cannabis beverages. Do you see them make it as much on cannabis as they are on alcohol, though? No, because I don't think it, you don't you don't consume as That's much I mean. volume. You don't consume yeah. by the volume. So I think there has to be other ways for the for the for them to make money. Yeah, exactly. And I think food is probably that way. Because food, I mean, obviously, you need you get you get stoned and you want you get want to eat, right? Yeah, I know. I always want to eat. I get real high. I don't. I, I want to go well, instead of having like shot shot girls. They could have hit girls where they come around, you know, and you dab right there or something, walking around with a thing. That could be true. But no, alcohol definitely. You, you, you may, I, I see that. I don't know. Maybe combine the. I like the aspect of the brewery. That's kind of what they're doing in Missouri. At what's the name of it? Smoky River. Smoky Dave? River. Yeah. SMA has a facility where they're going to, it's going to be a venue, truly a venue like this. 10,000 okay. seats, 15,000 feet seats, I mean, for like, you know, concerts. And then you can order in. You'd, it would be like almost like a delivery mechanism. You just have a spot where you'd pick up your product. Yeah. Be amazing. They're there's, doing it. They're doing it now in Missouri. Yeah. Believe there's a in place Missouri. in Muskegon that's going to be opening. They call it like a cannery, <laughs> basically a vertically integrated operation a la a winery. Right, but it's all cannabis, and you can do events there and all that stuff. And um, certainly, once they open, I want I want to rent it into a, a Dutchy customer appreciation event. Wow, we'll come help you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Started working at NCR as like a break fix technician, and for those that don't know, NCR it's National Cash Register, the original creator of the cash register system. I actually worked for a company called Radiant Systems, a reseller of Radiant Systems. NCR acquired Radiant Systems. And that's how I became an NCR employee. NCR uh, purchased the prop, the software Aloha, which was uh, the predominant restaurant software at the time. This is all like pre-cloud computing and you know, that kind of stuff. It's really, it was like a, a local server-based implementation. So I started off like doing break-fix type work. So I would go out to a terminal, 
that was broken and maybe like image a hard drive or replace a hard drive if it was bad or replace the entire terminal or maybe replace like a local server and you know deploy instances of the software and reset and transfer sales data stuff like that from one server to another so it was really like break fix but because i had worked in the restaurant business and owned a bar previously i was really familiar with how the technology would work inside the the facility so I, I really kind of excelled in that world i was only supposed to be there for about a year and then i was going to go into it security actually that was one of the things that i was really more interested in because i was inspired by movies you know when i was a kid like hackers and stuff like that so i had the, yeah. the, the wrong also, we don't like that word hackers with software <laughs> <laughs> so i had the wrong vision of what it really was like you know because i had come with the restaurant business so i really didn't have a good understanding of what it really meant to be a software engineer or anything like that. And when I started working in this as a break fix technician, I found that I really enjoyed engaging with my customers and being there on site and understanding how their operations work and how I could benefit their operations and how I could be a better partner to them. And so with that type of mindset, I really moved up quickly in the ranks and went from you know, the, the new person to running the entire office and, you know, a very short period of time. I, I did sales, I did account management, I did project management, I deployed tons and tons and tons of POSs. I worked on big shifts, um, you know, in groups like when Buffalo Wild Wings switched from micros to Aloha, I went and did a bunch of work with their franchisees who owned other businesses to say, hey, you know, how does this fit into your other business? Like there's a group called Bagger Dave's out of Michigan, I spent a bunch of time with them, just fitting the POS into that, into their business. And that really sparked my love for a point of sale. It seems so nerdy when we talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's the nervous center it's of all these businesses. So I really found that I enjoyed that. I left NCR and I went to a company called Zipscene where we did a bunch of data analytics. So I learned a lot about data analytics. I got a scrum master certification learned all about how product engineering works and how that stuff is built. And then I left Zipsyn because they were going to be acquired by NCR and I would have gone back to be an NCR employee. <laughs> that wasn't where I wanted to go. So I went to a little company that was uh, starting up called Toast and it was another point of sale system. Worked there for quite a while, spent a ton of time on the product side of Toast in the very beginning, helping build features, helping define what those features look like. And I was an original founder of the enterprise team at Toast. There were just a few of us that started that line of business and went out and worked with all of Toast's largest customers and continued to grow through Toast until I ended up leaving. And then I decided when I left Toast that I really, really, really wanted to go into the cannabis business. I did a ton of research on what companies I thought were going to do well in the cannabis space. I landed on a couple of companies. Dutchie was the top of that list just based on everything that I had understood, friends I had talked to in the industry, understanding how Dutchie had grown based on what happened during the pandemic and like the spike of growth that Dutchie was. And then I reached out to Dutchie and they were like, hey, you should maybe consider coming here because we're going to acquire these POS systems. And I thought, well, you know what? That's great. I can learn e-com and I can learn POS. And so I decided to go to Dutchie because I, th I felt like Dutchie was the best company to really make a difference. And the way the retailers, the retailers' success 
and then also really able to kind of drive the future of the industry. Well, that that explains a lot because I've known you now for a few years and I've always been impressed about how many different aspects of the business you're you're really knowledgeable about. And this this now everything comes together for me. It all clicks. No, I know when you came over to Dutchie, it's funny because I think that's when we we outlaws started working, but we were working with LeafLogic at the time. So I think a lot of listeners probably remember LeafLogic and then you guys had GreenBits, which became Dutchie. So the Dutchie history is kind of interesting. So the Dutchie, walk me through that. That was two brothers. Weren't they coming out of Canada? Maybe you can kind of enlighten some folks on the Dutchie history. Sure. Yeah. So there were two brothers that founded Dutchie. They lived in Detroit, actually. Yeah, Michigan. Okay. Yeah, Ross had moved to Canada. He he married a, a Canadian woman and he had started a business in Canada. Actually, he had started a business in, in Michigan that he then sold to Grubhub, I believe. And in, as part of that, he couldn't continue to work in the U.S. So he moved to Canada and basically started, I think it was called Skip the Dishes, I believe is what it was called. And it was like online ordering for food in Canada. And then he exited that business and sold that one off and went over to Oregon, took some time off and then decided that he wanted to start an online ordering business for cannabis when he was standing in line waiting to purchase his cannabis and couldn't order it online. So that's how uh, Dutchie was birthed, was through that originally from the desire to order food and then standing in line for a dispensary to, you know, cannabis uh, e-com. That's interesting because, yeah, it's funny because it was kind of surprising to us, to be honest with you. So Hans and I, obviously started working with leaf logic more in your cultivation, you know, which I think this audience may not know. Dutchie is a preeminent POS vendor, but they also have a very strong cultivation tool set as well. So for our experience, we started working with you guys specifically in some states like Virginia and certain specific customers, which really kind of got the inner working together. And then it's kind of evolved from there. But yeah, it was kind of surprising to me, quite honestly, when uh, the announcement came that Dutchie bought both leaf logic and green bits. I'm like, whoa, this is changing the game quickly. And Dutchie grew so fast, though, too, Sarah. I mean, you guys went from great e-commerce platform and then acquired this. I mean, what's the the valuation on the company? I remember was like a few billion back then. Very with only within only a few few years. Is that correct? Right. Dutchie's valuation was three point seven five billion at Series D, and Dutchie was started in two thousand seventeen. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and I'm curious. So today, I mean, not round numbers, but just generally speaking, how many dispensaries does Dutchie effectively operate? When I say operate, you know, is the point of sale system is really the nerve center, if you want to call it that. Yeah, right now Dutchie touches over 6,500 dispensaries. Wow. It's a lot. Yeah. And, and every legal market in North America. So, you know, some places only have e-com, some places have e-com and POS, some places only have POS. Uh, a good chunk of our customers use our full suite of software because of the benefits that they get using the entire platform. Yeah, and I've talked somewhat about about this, Sarah, about what life is like with Dutchie, you know, because you're able to, I mean, I think you compared it to, to working with Apple products because everything just works so well together. Yeah, correct. Everything does work really well together, especially if I'm like a vertically integrated operator. I can see down my own supply chain. If I, you know, am out of lemon haze cartridges, I can understand, you know, where they are in the production process. It's really, really great to be able to, you know, have that visibility down the supply chain using the platform. But even if you're just using things like the EO, the e-commerce and the POS, 
you know, the syncing between the two is, is fantastic. And to be able to have two, you know, one company to be able to call for any issue you're having and not having to say, oh, I'm going to call this e-com vendor. They're going to say it's my point of sales problem. I'm going to call my point of sales vendor. They're going to say it's my e-coms problem. And then you just get a bunch of finger pointing. So I think that, you know, other than just using the platform for its functions, features, and compatibility, it's also that that ability to be able to call one vendor and to be able to have your problem solved. And I think Dutchie does a really great job at supporting our customers. Now, do we get it right every time? No, no one gets it right every time. That would be crazy to say you get it right every time. But I feel like we get it right more often than we get it wrong. And if we do get it wrong, we're there to make up for what we did incorrectly. We own that and then we, you know, we make it right with our customers. So I think when I think about choosing a vendor like that and I think about how that vendor is going to support my business as a whole, it's not just the features that are going to make things work because every platform has features that are going to be great for your, you know, your business and features that may not be the perfect fit for your business. But it's how does the company address the support and the the life cycle of you as a customer? And are they going to be a true partner or are they just going to be a vendor that's going to say, hey, sorry, can't help you. Go call this other vendor because it's their problem. And oh, by the way, we don't work well with that other vendor. There's a lot of you know uh, tension between us. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That was kind of the mantra for us as well at Outlaw. And I say that because coming into this industry, what we learned very, very quickly was impatience. I mean, if 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 a dispensary, a cultivation, a distribution partner, if they were unhappy, you're out. I mean, it wasn't like, hey, can you give me a chance? <laughs> Pretty much you're done. So we, we also put a conscious effort, which is why we really excited to early on in our existence to team with Dutchie because we knew that, right, with the LeafLogic team, with the Jason Fowlers and dealing with James Minatello. And obviously that's evolved now to become the Dutchie uh, instances. It's always been a great existence with us because, you know, working with you guys, you know, we need a key to basically talk to cultivation. It's been very, very seamless, but it's also been very partner related. You know, we could do it, know that you guys would get back to us. And that our common customer would be happy because early on in this space, we always felt like, look, they have 24 hours to get this data up legally. We got to do it, right? Now that you have the same pressure, but uh, the goal of all of us is to make life easy, not hard. Uh, on that, Dave, I want to talk about how we first started working with Dutchie. Actually, it was LeafLogic at the time, as you referenced. And you, know, you were very heavily involved in that. We all were. But I'd, I'd like to ask you, and I know, Sarah, you weren't with Dutchie at the time, but we started in Virginia, Dave. If you just go into that a little bit, how that whole yeah, I mean, partnership came about. Yeah, happy to. So we were working with and have till to this day, we work with a company called G-Leaf, uh, which is in Frederick, Maryland, which is now part of the Columbia Care, which is now the, the cannabis. I know the names are changing. They basically uh, got a license in Virginia, which opened uh, their Richmond operation, which required them by Richmond requirements of the state, I should say, of Virginia was that you would track each plant and package, very similar to metric, but they just determined it in an electronic tracking device. So we, um, knowing that G-Leaf at the time was also a very big Dutchie fan and we're using Dutchie, both POS and in some cases, I think in cultivation, we told them that we would work with Dutchie. So we kind of went hand in hand. We worked very closely with Damian Smith, who's part of the Dutchie team. And we really kind of worked out the ability where Dutchie with Outlaw 
We could provide tags that they could be encoded and printed, put on the plants and effectively check the box. That's an area where, again, if we're in a metric state, obviously that infrastructure is driven by metric and done very, very well. In fact, we're looking to work with metric close more closely on that. But that was kind of the starting point. And then it kind of evolved. We didn't have a POS solution as we do today. So I'd say the real kind of early days in Dutchie and Outlaw was, you know, how do we help on harvest? How do we help on the day-to-day plant move, plant destruction, those kind of functions? And like I said, it was seamless. We had a lot of common customers in Michigan, Massachusetts, obviously Virginia, Maryland. So yeah, that's kind of how we got going. And then with the acquisitions that occurred, you know, Dutchie became Dutchie, obviously. And then we fortunately, as of last year, 2023, launched our Maverick tool so that dispensaries could now have tools. Speaking of dispensaries, we've talked a lot about Maverick, you and I and Dave, Sarah, and how we can help with the inventories in metric states, obviously, where we can also help track all the package tags, but also in non-metric states. I'd like to get your take on how important it is for the dispensaries to be utilizing tools like this that just makes their lives easier and also helps to eliminate human error? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that accuracy is so important and to reduce shrinkage, to make sure you stay compliant, to reduce cost and labor, because as we know, labor is one of our largest costs. So if you're able to use tools to properly automate and increase accuracy of your inventory counts, number one, like I said, shrinkage. I mean, that's just huge, right? I mean, we all know that in this world today, things walk out the back door and that can cause some major problems. So I think that you know, being able to have really accurate RFID technology that can tell me exactly what's in my inventory allows me to do it more often at a cheaper price because I don't have to go through and manually count everything. I'm able to you know, go through and grab that information very quickly. I can reduce my shrinkage. I can take the load that you know my employees are feeling off of them because you know, it can be very cumbersome to have to deal with counting everything manually. And if I have an ability to be able to just walk by and grab that information and check it regularly, it's going to make that much less of a chore for me. And it's going to save all those labor hours. And saving those labor hours, all those things translate back to dollars in my pocket. And so when I think about features and I think about growing my tech stack and things that I would need to to be able to account for to justify that spend, I can want something till the cows come home and it can be cool and it can do all the neat things that you know the salespeople are telling me it can do. But the minute that it puts a dollar into my pocket, now I have to have it because every minute that I don't have that is money that's not going into my pocket. And I think this type of setup Uh, is really one of those key things where, you know, if you don't have a quality, fast, accurate way to maintain your inventory across your entire supply chain, then you're wasting money. Yeah. that's kind of where we kicked this off. I think we were being pushed by, I would say, the cultivation side of the business saying, hey, our dispensary is in trouble. When I say trouble, like, you know, finding ways, the manual side of it, like Maryland, where I reside, Maryland has a one hour before opening, one hour after close requirement. So now, and Maryland doesn't allow product to stay on the floor. I got to pull it out of my vault. I got to get it on the floor. I got to get it back into the vault. But in the meantime, I'm supposed to count it. So we 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 found that, yeah, if you can't do that, if you don't automate things, yeah, you're going to find yourself really either having way too many headcount people, you know, overhead, 
or you're just going to not do it well and, and eventually it'll catch up to you. I am curious, though, quick question, because you've had so much experience from your NCR toast days, what's the difference when I'd say from a traditional retail to a cannabis retail? I don't think people appreciate that the complexities is a bit different, especially with the compliance demand. I think everyone thinks it's a 7-Eleven or a corner gas station. It's not so, correct? Oh, not not at all. There's so many differences. I mean, compliance being the major one, and sure, some C stores will have compliance around alcohol and tobacco, but they're certainly not having to report each sale individually and back to the state with the person who purchased that. You know, and of course, each state has different regulations, different requirements. I would say the overhead of the compliance is definitely the the biggest change. Also, the vetting of your employees, right? In Ohio, for example, where I live, you know, you have to pay a fee for each one of your employees to be registered in the system. They've got to go through all their background checks. It's not the same as going to your, you know, your local 7-Eleven and getting a job. It's very different requirements. You know, you have to, in, in the state of Ohio, you have to submit your high school transcripts and like all the things that go along with being employed in a, in a medical only state. I know Ohio has changed the recreational, all that stuff's going to change soon, but it's much more cumbersome to hire and retain employees in a state like Ohio than it is for cannabis than it is for traditional retail. Yeah. And I think it's going to be interesting. And I know you guys at, at Dutchie obviously are probably looking at this eventually. And I use the term eventually. There's going to be, you know, interstate commerce, right? It's going to be me shipping product from Ohio to Maryland. And then, you know, how does that going to happen? I think it's going to be real interesting as this industry evolves a bit where, you know, right now, a lot of the systems are like, you know, looking at it at a facility. I think you brought up earlier, Dutchie allows you to roll things up. That's going to be such a huge need going forward because I think the reality of it is managing on a state level is is challenging enough. But when you open it up and you have 10 states and 100 dispensaries, it's going to get real interesting for these folks. I'm curious your thoughts on that. There's a couple of things. One is I think once you do have interstate commerce, I think we start to see the Midwest really change in the way that grow operations are based because there's so much land in the Midwest and it's so much cheaper than it is in places like New York or Connecticut, Massachusetts, right? There's, there's, yeah. So I think you could see massive grows popping up in the Midwest for sure. So I think the other key is going to be having a great technology platform that allows you to be able to manage your inventory across multiple locations and across multiple states. And I think Dutchie does a really good job of having a master management system, master product catalog management system that will allow businesses to grow properly. Because one of the things that I've seen in point of sale across my entire career is if it is not architected correctly in the back end and you don't have a good way to be able to take your menu or your items and share them in multiple states, multiple uh, municipalities, multiple stores, multiple ways, behave different ways in different stores, all with having one centralized way to track the data, then you're just going to be set up for failure. That makes total sense. Dutchie works in multiple states, mostly metric states like us, but you also work in non-metric states. What's your experience been in the non-metric states? Are you able to talk to that at all? I'm not nearly as familiar with BioTrack as I am with the metrics though. So on, on the metric side, do you have any feedback you'd like to share with metric on how it could be better? Uh, uh, I'm going to duck out of that one. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we, we, we think they're great, but I mean, there's a, all of us are always improving and, and we know metric is also making lots of changes to its software. They just came out with their new API, which is great for all of us. But on that note, since you have been in the industry for four years, which basically makes you an old timer already like us for this industry, what kind of pitfalls, what kind of advice or would you give people, what pitfalls should they look out for? existing licensees and people who are looking to come into the industry? You know, I've got a lot of experience in deploying on-site technology and rip and replace of on-site technology from retails, restaurants, you know, you name it, movie theaters, gas stations, I've done them all. The biggest thing that I can say is own your technology. If you are an owner or you are someone who is in charge of the technology at your dispensary or chain of dispensaries or cultivation or whatever the scenario is, you have to own the use of your own technology. What ends up happening is, you know, an owner or a manager or someone will not ask, will not learn the technology well enough. And then the person who runs the day-to-day of the technology ends up leaving the facility or the company, and then they're stuck. And then it's the vendor's fault that no one knows how to use the technology. Well, it's not the vendor's fault. It's that you haven't invested in your own technology. So if you're going to deploy technology into your stores, which we all have to these days, you need to own the use and reporting on that technology. And you need to make sure that you have clear ways to enable your staff on that technology. So as you have turnover in your staff, that you don't lose your ability to continue to interact with that technology in a meaningful way. Because if you don't own it and you don't drive it forward, it's going to become a really expensive paperweight and you're not going to get the things that you want from it. And then rather than having a lot of self-accountability, people will start placing blame on vendors. And it's not the vendors, like it's not my job to make sure that you have proper training inside your store that when you have turnover, someone else is ready to take the, the, the reins. Right now, I can provide you with all the training that you need, and I can help you with the things that you need to get to be successful. But I, but I can't do it for you. And so, I've seen so many people struggle because they just simply don't take the initiative to own the technology and own it in a way that's going to be meaningful for them. I had a feeling you were going to say something along those lines because we had a conversation like that. Had several conversations like that, that, but particularly uh, months ago in Las Vegas at MJ BizCon, we talked about this exact same thing. This is one of the pain points of Dutchy and Outlaw and many vendors that uh, people don't own the technology, and then the one person who knows how to use it leaves the company, and there they are, and they don't know what to do without that person. So thank you for going where I would hope you would go, Sarah. Yeah, to that end, I agree with you 100% that these folks, if they don't own the the stack that they've purchased and don't put it to use, it's it's like having a you know it's like having a feature that just sits like you said like a paperweight. We have the same issue time and time again, and it it is a bit frustrating on the vendor side, your side, my side, because our goal is just to make their life easier, trying to give them a product that actually drives the value we all espouse. You know, we're trying to save the time. We're trying to make it more efficient. We're trying to make your life, you know, we had one client say, you get me home at dinner at night. So those are the kind of things that make you feel good it, it, that you're bringing something to the market. But I agree 100%. It is a challenge uh, when, you know, Susie, Jimmy, Billy leave 
And the thing that I've learned quickly, like no other industry I've ever worked in, is that turnover in this industry, either promotions or leaving or just flat out getting out, is insane. Huge. Huge. You know, we've talked about it. Where's What's Dutchie looking to do going forward? What are some of the features, functions? I know you guys are constantly innovating. I mean, I, one thing I'll give you when people talk about POS vendors, you know, you guys are... are for lack of better terms, the 800-pound gorilla. What are some things you guys are looking to do in 2024 or even beyond that the industry would want to know about? So many great things with uh, advanced discounting and being able to make sure that uh, you know discounting across POS and e-com is really seamless. Being able to grow personalization so that you know you under you have all this data about your customers and the information is so rich, right? Like I know that if and and I'm not this type of this type of consumer, but I know that if you know Bob comes in and Bob is only worried about high concentrate flour or a high THC flour, which once again I'm not that type of consumer, but we know many many people are. You know when they sign in to look online, and you know, we're going to be able to show them, hey, we know that you like this high potency flour. Here's high potency flour, you know, and and be able to pop that up for them so that they're able to have a more personalized interaction when they're shopping at their favorite dispensary. And then you're able to increase, you know, average order value. You're able to really present them with things that, you know, they may have, hey, usually you get a lemon haze cart. Did you forget your lemon haze cart? Oh, you know what? I did forget my lemon haze cart. Let me go ahead and add that to cart. So that way you have that personalized experience and you're you're able to really feel that many, that that many to one type of connection from the dispensary. Like, hey, they actually are paying attention to uh, to what it is that I'm purchasing. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Now, I'm curious, again, with your experience over the years, it's funny because that doesn't exist in like alcohol and other industries. No one says, hey, I've got a new tequila you might like. I mean, not that I've ever seen as a consumer. So it almost seems like you're cutting edge. You know, I don't know. I think if you look at traditional retail, traditional retail really blazes the pathway for this type of stuff. You're seeing a lot of these things and, you know, Platforms like Instacart. Yeah, right? true. That's yeah. True. You're, you're going to see a lot of those things there. Uh, I think alcohol is a little different. I mean, sure, there's like Drizzly and stuff like that where you can order alcohol online, but it's not as prominent. You know, typically when I'm going for a drink, I either go to like the bar because I'm not yep. going to have a, a full liquor cabinet here, so I'm going to go on prem and consume, or I'm going to go to the liquor store and I generally know what it is that I want. If I'm getting a bourbon, I might try a different type of bourbon but I know that I'm going to get a bourbon, right? And so I'm going to the store. I don't necessarily need to go online and get a bunch of research about this particular bourbon. Whereas in cannabis, there's a lot more thought that may go into that purchase. Agreed. It definitely is. My liquor store, when I go in, they are always trying to get me to try new stuff. And I I do enjoy it when they have samples there. (laughs) I'd like to thank you very much, Sarah, for being on our show, but before we let you go, we have one question we ask all of our guests. So Dave, why don't you do the honors? Yeah. We always like to know our guests who their favorite outlaw is, be it fictional, be it someone in your life that you consider an outlaw. We always like to get a sense of who's your outlaw. <laughs> That's a good question. There, there's a, a couple things that come to mind there. Personally, I grew up on the Young Guns movies, so the Emilio Estevez's personification of Billy the Kid was always one of my favorites. I love those movies. I love the the sense of 
you know, justice for John Tunstall. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really, really loved that whole movie series where I think Emilio Estevez's Billy the Kid is probably one of my favorite personifications of an outlaw. I would say some of the women that are married to members of my family used to have dinners and they would call it the outlaw dinner because they were all the in-laws. Oh, wow. <laughs> called the outlaw dinner. <laughs> they would all go out to like my partner and like my uncle's partner and my uh, stepfather's partner. All these people would go out and they'd have like th- these outlaw dinners. And so I would say they're my favorite outlaws overall in my personal life because I value them so much. But from, from a fictional character standpoint, definitely Emilio Estevez, Billy the Kid. We'll have to send you real quick. Uh, we'll have to send you some bandanas for your next dinner. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much, Sarah, for being on our show. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask on our podcast about compliance, metric, or automation, please email them to us at info at outlawtechnology.net. And if you know of any licensee that could benefit from our from our systems, please send them to our website, put them into the referral program. You can download past episodes of our program by going to outlawtechnology.net, cannabisradio.com or the Cannabis Radio app, or iTunes and Google Play, as well as subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, and YouTube. Thanks for listening and be well.